Welcome to Way Family Church. You're listening to our sermon podcast. Way Family Church is a new church plant in Tucson, Arizona. We welcome you to join us every Sunday morning at 1030 for worship, the word, and fellowship. If you'd like more information, visit us online at wayfamily.church. And today as we go into chapter 4 of Esther, I just, I just want to share something that... Um, they kind of happened uh, this week. You know, it's funny how as I'm preparing for the sermon throughout the week, the Lord just gives me different insights and I'll get opportunities to, to learn about it and to, uh, to practice it, to live it out. And this one really spoke to me. And I think that the lesson behind this is tremendous for us, especially in the day and time that we live in right now. In fact, uh, it's something that we should consider. Are we here today for such a time? You know, I think it's so easy for us to think about the world around us and to think about uh, what things look like. And a lot of us are truly disappointed at the turn that the world has taken. And it seems for the worse. I don't know that anyone's excited about the trajectory of the, the world right now, right? But could it be that we are here today, right now, in Tucson, for such a time as this? And I think the answer is yes. I think that the answer, be, the, the, the answer is that God is sovereign and him being sovereign and his sovereignty, uh, he knew that you would live right here, right now, right? And with that, there's purpose. With that, there's meaning, you know? Uh, I'll give you a little spoiler, a heads up. Uh, our next series after Esther is going to be Ecclesiastes. And we're gonna be talking about how everything is meaningless aside from Jesus Christ. All right. And so thinking about that, when we have Christ in our hearts, when we have him, when we've been transformed by him, when we've been freed by him, there's a lot of purpose, a lot of meaning. And when we do that, there's a, obviously a clear message that we receive from him, and it's through the word of the Lord. I've heard this said before, if you know enough to be saved, you know enough to share with someone else. In other words, you have enough information to, to share it with someone else, to make a difference you have been asked to say something, if you would. And so again, um, you guys know this about me. I enjoy listening to podcasts. And there was one in particular that came up that seemed very interesting because, interesting because it was two very different persons or personalities. It was a con- the podcast was a conversation between a comedian named Bill Maher. He's also a TV, TV host. You probably have heard of him. He's actually quite a vulgar person. You know, he's actually someone who uh, is a huge critic of Christianity. And in fact, his words, and I'm going to smooth them out a little bit because he's a vulgar person. He always perceived biblical stories to be dumb, Bronze Age stories. And that's just the way that he approached them. In fact, he didn't even give them the day of, of time or the time of day to be able to listen to one to process it. But the reason why this conversation uh, grasped my attention is because of who he was talking to, and he was talking to a psychologist slash philosopher slash Old Testament surveyor, Jordan Peterson, you've probably heard of him as well. And the conversation at first was like, okay, whatever. And then they got into this biblical story where Peterson brings something up, and Mars like, oh, tch, those are silly stories, right? No, Peterson says, there's actually something deep about these stories. And of course, I'm not saying that he approached the stories theologically, right? But more philosophically, which is still very interesting, the way that he's gifted to be able to unpack those things. And I'm listening to this conversation. And Peterson starts sharing the story of Jonah with Bill Maher. And at first he's like, you know. But he's like, no, 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 listen. 
Like, listen to the story, and I'm not going to tell you the story of Jonah right now, but he essentially tells him the story of Jonah, and then he goes down to the principle of the story, and he says, here's what it means, and, and this is the part that really just, I thought it was interesting for us and for today. He says, when you've been given something to say, and you don't say that that you've been given to say, then you put everyone in the ship at risk, meaning you know, in regards to Jonah, you know, trying to run away from the Lord's calling in his life, he goes into the ship and the storms hit. And he says, and the storms will come up and then here you are at risk. If you have been given something to say, and if you don't say it, it could cost someone else's life. It could even risk your own. And that was essentially the, 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 the moral of the story as Peterson brought it up. It was fascinating because Mar actually looked and, and you can tell that he was thinking about it because I, I know that he actually believes in that in a sense. You know what I mean? And so I was just thinking about that. If you've been given something to say and if you don't say it, it could put the whole ship at risk and even your own life. And then I go into Esther chapter four and I'm thinking, I think the Lord has something to say to us, right? And so with that, let's go to Esther chapter four and read what the, the, the rest of the story goes, you know, uh, we left off, left off, excuse me, in chapter three. There's this uh, decree that was made through Haman, right? The signet ring was given to him. And so therefore a law was established that everyone who was a Jew would be annihilated. And, th and that's it. And then the last verse that we read there is that he and King Ahasuerus went and sat down to drink and the whole city of Susa was thrown into confusion. And I can imagine that being so because out of nowhere, you could say out of the blue, now there's this, this decree against a particular people. In other words, what happened? Of course they would be confused. There wasn't any kind of enmity. There wasn't any kind of war or conflict between them. It was just a hateful desire from Haman and they're thrown into confusion. And so that's where we left off. Chapter four of Esther says this, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. And he went out into the midst of the city and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in, clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, province, excuse me, whether the king's command, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When, Esther, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he may take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai into the open square of the city in the front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay the, into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go into the king to beg his favor and plea with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servant and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes into, inside the king's inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except 
the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to, to come to the, to, to the king for 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. He says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will ex escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from, for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And I, my young women, all, will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you, Father, for your word. Lord, we ask that you would speak to us. Help us understand, Lord Jesus, your words for us today. And help us be well equipped, Father, to live them out for your glory. In Jesus' mighty name we ask this. Amen. So if you didn't notice, this is a dialogue. This is a conversation between Mordecai and Esther. And it's done through a mediator. Do this Hatach guy, right? It's like sending the message and relaying the message back and forth. And so the way that I want to break down the way we see this, uh, uh, this, this chapter today is actually in four, four sections. The first thing I want to look at is Mordecai's reaction. His reaction to the situation, to the fact that Haman has pushed a decree against the Jews. So what's his reaction? How does he respond to that? And then I want to look at es Esther's rational response to Mordecai and to the situation followed by Mordecai's reply to Esther's response, and then we're going to see Esther's sacrificial re response to it all. So again, the dialogue. Mordecai, Esther, Mordecai, Esther, let's see what happens. And so let's look at that first portion, Mordecai's reaction. Again, the reaction to the decree made against the Jews. What does this say? In verse 1 of chapter 4, when Mordecai learned that all had been done. Now li listen to this. Like This is interesting. It was Mordecai who actually triggered Haman to do all of this. And so I can only imagine being in Mordecai's shoes. Like, what happened? And so to me, this is part of the grief. To me, this is like him taking responsibility for everything that has happened. But his response, in my opinion, from what I could see, is so appropriate. And there's so much from us, for us to learn from his response. And so once he learned that all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. This is tremendous. The fact that he do this, in other words, is, is, is a, an expression of his blatant uh, just turmoil. You know, uh, when you tore your clothes and put on sackcloth back in the day, you know, it was an expression of deep grief, deep sorrow. This is what he's doing. We, you know, we, we, we know that Haman was motivated to annihilate the Jews, and it very much could have been because of Mordecai. Mordecai very much would have thought it to be you know, his responsibility in this regard. But the reaction is a very clear expression of sorrow and mourning. And I don't think it's a sense of regret. 
necessarily, that he regretted doing the right thing or the thing that he was just so convicted to do. We talked about how sometimes when we do the right thing, we have terrible outcomes at the end, right? Or, or difficult outcomes, think, difficult things that follow. I don't think that Mordecai is necessarily regretting the situation, but he truly is sorrowful and grieving the reality of the decree that was passed. This means that the Jewish people, that his people have been destined for death. That's, that's grieving. That's hard to think. We've always been a persecuted people, and this is it. This is the final nail right in the coffin. And so I would say that, that this response was not only adequate, it was of high impact. Now, again, this was a common practice uh, to, to, to tear your clothes and to put on sackcloth. It was a form of grief, and everyone understood what that meant at that time. We don't see that today. Perhaps we should, right? But everyone knew what that was. It was, again, a common practice of mourning in the ancient Middle East. In fact, there's a few examples that I'll point to. One in Genesis chapter 37, verse 34. Jacob, when he learned or when he was told that his son Joseph had been killed by a wild animal, he tore his garments and put on sackcloth and he mourned for his son in many days. I don't know if you've ever grieved to that degree. I'll be the first to confess that I don't know if I have. I don't think I have. I don't think I have experienced such deep sorrow to the point where I you know, have the desire to just blatantly and openly grieve and mourn and wail out. I don't know that. I haven't felt that. But I know that some of you guys have. I know that some of you guys have felt an insane, uh, immense sense of sorrow and pain where you just can't help but to cry out, where nothing else matters except for crying out to the Lord, right? And so we have several examples of this. Job is another one. Chapter 1, verse 20 of Job. We see that Job too mourned in this way. He put on sackcloth. He tore his clothes. He grieved. He poured ashes over his head. This was a very humbling display saying, Lord, I need you. I got nothing. I've lost it all. At this point, I'm, I'm done. I need you. Be, be my sustenance. You know, King Hezekiah does the same thing. The king of Nineveh does the same thing after he receives the message from Jonah. This is a very, very good response to grief, to mourning. It's okay to feel that way. It's okay to feel too broken, right? We've looked at Psalms in the past and we've seen that lamenting is actually something that the Lord allows us to do and process. And it's very helpful for us to lament. It's extremely helpful for us to go to the Lord with our sorrows, with our concerns, and say, Lord, I need you, right? Mordecai's reaction was the reaction of one who had suffered deep, great loss. If you can imagine being in Mordecai's shoes. But again, he doesn't mourn privately. He doesn't grieve privately. This is a public lament. In other words, it goes beyond that place where it's just between you and the Lord. It's, now it's like, no, I am desperate. When you have that sense of desperation, nothing else matters, right? And so he goes into the, one of the most public squares of the city, right in front of the king's gates. Again, not worried about concealing anything. If he was hiding his Jewish heritage, that matters no more. He's being open about it, right? It, it, nothing, nothing is hitting at this point. Everything, everything is revealed. Everything is, 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 is just displayed in front of the Lord and everyone else for that matter. Mordecai was genuinely moved with grief and he expressed it in the clearest way he knew how to do it, okay? And so we see that, we have a clear picture of that because, and this is, I think, a huge lesson for us, when crisis hits, the last thing we ought to do is to conceal our concern. 
when crisis hits, the first thing we need to do is run to the Lord. Talk to one another, right? But come to Him. Pour yourself out to the Lord, not, not hide. I don't know why we do this sometimes. We instinctually sometimes hide to ourselves. We stick ourselves in the closet because we're grieving or we're doing something. That's the, best, the best thing to do is not to conceal our concern, but to bring it in front of the Lord. You know, because the Lord is able to deal with that. I think that our modern Western world, and perhaps you'll agree with me, tends to be very individualistic in this sense that we often think of ourselves as non-concerning, right? We, we hold to ourselves. We keep to ourselves. I keep saying this, like a good neighbor, stay over there, <laughs> right? Like we're very individualistic in that sense. We don't actually have the concern for one another. We don't even know who our neighbors are anymore, you know? It's like, who's the guy next door? I don't know. I don't care. I don't care. You know, <laughs> can't raise your hand. They're my neighbors. Right. And so in that sense of just being in so individualistic, we 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 hide our concerns. We're not concerned for another person. And we don't actually consider the fact that our disobedience or our obedience to the Lord actually impacts other people. Did you know that? The way that you respond in any way impacts someone else. If you're obedient to the Lord, that impacts other people. It influences other people. If you're disobedient to the Lord, that also has an impact. Anything and everything that each one of us does is going to affect someone else. And so we have to be conscious of that, right? And so Mordecai reacts again to this awful news in a matter that influences many. He's out there, he's showing it, and it says in verse 3, along with Mordecai, it tells us that in every province, whether, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. This was such a pivotal moment. This was such a, a scene. I can only imagine what Susa the Citadel sounded like that day, you know? And everywhere else in Persia that received this degree, there was a great mourning. Um, I just think of, you know, in Exodus, after the 10th plague, there was a great mourning in that city after the, the death of the firstborn. And so you see this very, I think, dramatic situation. And again, it was his, Mordecai's reaction to Haman and what he had plotted that put uh, this disastrous situation in mourning. And so it's also his reaction, his faithfulness again to the Lord that had seemingly resulted again in just influencing or motivating others to do the same, to grieve and to bring their laments in front of the Lord. Because when you do that, you're also, when you're sharing your hope, your concern with someone else, it also brings it to another person. And so it's important for us to see that we do trust and hope in the Lord. And so Esther learns of Mordecai's condition. And this is good here. She sends garments to Mordecai that he would not be seen in shame. That's her instinctive reaction. And perhaps, you know, she said, if you change, get, get, get this off, you know. Put, put a garment on so that you can come into the palace and have a conversation with me. That was her reaction. And you know, that's very interesting. We have a lot to learn here because I think that that's what we do a lot often. You know, we, we often instinctually see that someone has a need. We see that someone is grieving or they have, they have some kind of hurt. And instead of taking the time to listen to see what's going on, we come up with a solution right away. At least that's what I do very often, you know. Um, again, I haven't really experienced 
that, that sense of loss where close relatives of mine have, have, have passed away or anything like that. I haven't, I haven't experienced that, but I know that many of you guys have. My wife has. And in that season where she had experienced such a thing, I didn't know how to respond to that. In fact, I responded in the way that wasn't helpful. It was like, this will pass, honey. Don't worry about it. They're, they're in a much better place now. We can rejoice and we can, we can just have, consider it full joy that this happened. That's the wrong answer. You know, is that true? Yes, but in the moment, that's the wrong answer. And so this is essentially what Esther's doing. Is Mordecai's grieving, he's mourning, he's lamenting, he's, he's displaying deep sorrow. And instead of, you know, being compassionate and, and, and sympathizing with him, she's like, hey, get him out of that situation get him into a better place. That's essentially what she's doing, all right? But Mordecai refused the garment. He said, no, it was of a higher value to him to continue to do this, to continue to direct his despairs towards God, to bring his laments before him than to consider it to be nothing, right? You can't even do that when you're in that sense of lament. You can't just shut it off. You have to go through the process. And there's no better process than going to the Lord and just pouring yourself out to him and so what I'd like for us to do, because I read this passage and I thought, oh, this is really helpful to help us understand what Mordecai might have been going through. And this is in the book of Lamentations of all places, right? Lamentations chapter 30, verse 66. I want to read this for you because, again, it gives us insight of what it looks like to lament in a way that's God honoring and very helpful and, and, and building. Because when we're, when we're grieving, nothing, nothing helps, it seems, but this does. And so let me show you this lamentation from Jeremiah, uh, but I, I really think that it's very sim it might have been very similar to what Mordecai was going through. Lamentations chapter 3, verse 40, it says this, Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts and hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled, and you have not forgot forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us. Killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. Our enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have, pun uh, have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes will flow without ceasing, without respite until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of the city, of my city. I have been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head. I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me. O Lord, judge my cause. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all day long. Behold, they're sitting and they're rising. I am the object, object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You 
will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. What an insight. This is so similar to what Mordecai must have had been experiencing, feeling that his people were being persecuted and destroyed. And when we come to the Lord with our griefs, when we come to him with our laments, somehow the Holy Spirit directs us in understanding and recognizing who the Lord is. And the fact that vengeance belongs to him, not us. Right? And the fact that he's keenly aware of our, of, our, of our issues and our problems. And so through lamentations, again, we are taught and encouraged to go to the Lord with our despairs and sufferings instead of going away from him. When we run from the Lord, we end up like Jonah. We get lost and we put others at risk. Okay? And so when we run to the Lord, we are comforted, we're encouraged, we're at least given the strength to take the next step. And so again, Esther clearly hadn't learned of the situation. She goes and she offers a solution before she even knows what's going on. She's more concerned with Mordecai and the situation, the condition that he seems to be than she is about anything else. And so she sends him clothes. She sends him a solution without really considering the root of the issue. How often do we do that? Let's take them. Let's consider this. How often do we offer solutions to those who are brothers and sisters who are hurting without actually understanding their, their deepest need? Let's consider that. And so I read this powerful statement in one of my uh, commentaries, and I'm going to share it with you. It said, in our concern for others, let us not try to cover grief without first determining the cause of it. Esther was trying to provide answers when she needed to be asking questions, which she eventually did. And so I think that's a huge lesson for us to learn. How often, again, do we offer solutions without understanding the deepest concern? I know that I'm often guilty of this. And there's a proverb that actually my wife pointed me to in a time such as this where she was grieving and I was trying to comfort her, encourage her. And instead of doing it, I was actually doing the opposite. She said, you need to read Proverbs 25. I said, okay, I'm going to read Proverbs 25. Look at this, 25 verse 20. In fact, I was trying to share this with, with you the other day. It says, whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day. Think about that. And like vinegar on soda. I mean, you're, you're singing songs. It's a, that's a nice thing, right? But for someone who's grieving, who's hurting, it's like you're taking their garments off in a cold. You're making the matter worse. You know, it's like vinegar on soda. You know what happens when you put vinegar on, on, on baking soda? It just makes matters worse. In other words, although we intend on helping, we sometimes make matters worse worse because we're not taking the time to learn we're failing to just understand the cause of that other person's grief and it's important for us to just stop realize that we're not necessarily the solution but we can be part of it and that could be simply just by sitting next to someone and listening and asking questions you know and the right questions by all means <laughs> and so to me this is a huge lesson because again i'm guilty of being that person who sends the garment out before I consider your actual need. And I think there's a huge lesson here. Now let's look at verse 6 through 8. It says this, Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him. 
and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her, and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plea with him on behalf of her people. And so that's what Mordecai sends. And so now Esther is well informed of the situation, and she's also commanded by Mordecai. Look at this. Mordecai is displaying his fatherly influence on the queen of Persia, right? And he says, go do this. You must do this. He's taking matters. He knows that something must be done. This is nothing that we just gonna, we're just going to sit and watch. Something needs to happen. And so now she sees the situation and now she's being told it's time to do something. We live in the day and age where I could say that very easily to all of us. It's time to do something. We have a message. It's time to say it. It's time to proclaim it. It's no longer just for ours, for us. You know, it never has been, which is why the world looks the way that it does, because we're not proclaiming. We're not heralding truth. We're not sharing the message of salvation, of freedom. We're not sharing the message of reconciliation. We're not doing what we've been called to do as ministers of the word of the Lord. And so now is the time to do something. So now look at this next section, Esther's rational response. Because I do believe that she responds logically and rationally, and this is really good. Verse 9 through 11, it says this. This is her response. And Hathach went and told Esther all that Mordecai had said. And Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go back to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I haven't been called to the king. It's been over 30 days. What's to say that I'm actually going to see him anytime soon? I can't go there. In other words, I can't. I, I, I hear the concern. I see the problem. I can't. I'm sorry. That's logical. I mean, she gave a pretty good reason for it, right? There's a lot of reason for us not to do what we've been called to do. And that's rational, it's good. You can't guilt Esther for that, right? But she's like, I can't, I've essentially convinced myself and seen the situation and, and, I, and I conclude that I wish I could, but I can't. You know, I think that we can relate to that. At least I can, is it just me, right? I, I, I think that rationally or logically speaking, this is something that we sometimes consider ourselves to be incapable of. Like, I don't have the experience. I don't have the platform. I don't have the words. I don't have the personality. I don't even have access to whoever it is that I'm trying to minister. I don't know what to do. Okay, those are rational words. Perhaps you're so right about that, and we're not guilting you for that. We're not saying, hey, you know, um, you're wrong about that. No, that, that could be very true. But again, we have to be careful with what gets in the way from us doing what we've been called to do according to the Lord's will. And so again, Esther's people were in trouble, but instead of immediately jumping in at the chance to help, she hesitates and she thinks of all the reasons why she couldn't, even if she wanted to. Again, how often do we talk ourselves out of doing something that we've been positioned for purposefully? I think I've done that several times. And again, I'll be the last one to condemn Esther for that reaction because I often am hesitant to confront injustices. Oh man, there's been times where I felt like, oh, that is so wrong and I mm, ignore it. You know what I mean? So I, I, can't, I can't throw stones at her. 
I often am hesitant to risk myself for another even. If it means risking my life, my safety, my finances, my things, you know what I mean? Often I'm like, mm, someone, someone will take care of it. And I'm no longer responsible for that. But why? Why do we respond like this? You know, could it be that we think that we're better off just staying away from the problem? Not being involved from the problem? Or could it be that we just don't feel equipped or positioned to be of any help? Could it be that we just don't think of the problem as a shared problem? And we think it's not my problem? Could it be that? It's like, oh, I'm sorry, I wish you well. It's Self-preservation. That's why we do that. And again, Esther has a very rational response, very logical. She's got good reason behind it. And she may have, again, a good reason not, you may have, we all may have good reasons, logically speaking, to not do what we've been called to do. But regardless of any excuse, the Lord, and listen to this, and this hit me hard when I read this, the Lord requires us, requires us to do justice. Let me show you Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. We could do a whole sermon just on that verse because there's so much depth to this passage. But if we consider it, and we understand the fact that we've been called to do this. It, it's a required thing for those who are the redeemed, the kingdom of God, to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly before our God. Knowing this responsibility, we must jump at the opportunity to do justice. We, would, she could, we should consider it an opportunity, a joy, a privilege to do that. And I think, again, knowing their responsibility as God's chosen people, Mordecai does not settle with her response. So Esther gives, her, gives him a logical, clear response, and Mordecai does not take it. This is no matter of just sitting and thinking about it. This is a time to move. And so his, he replies with wisdom and with authority. And I love this. Look at Mordecai's reply now. Verse 12 through 14, Mordecai begins his reply with an exhortation. You know what an exhortation is? We, see, we hear that word often, right? You know what an exhortation is. It's the form of words intended to move the mind to action and to encourage. But often we think of an exhortation as that, as an encouragement of words, right? Did you know that it could also be different in the sense that it's more of a warning? Like I'm actually encouraging you to change something because you run the risk of danger. That is also an exhortation. Exhortations are not all warm and fuzzy all the time, but they're good. Okay, and so this is how Mordecai responds. And he says this in verse 12. He says, and they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther. And he says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So a few things that happened here. He exhorts her. He examines the situation, right? He evaluates the thing and he brings wisdom and action. And I love it. Again, an exhortation may land as encouraging or uplifting or it may land as challenging. In this case, it lands challengingly. It is more of a warning. He says, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. In other words, don't think that this is not your problem. 
Don't think that this isn't going to influence you or impact you. There's something to be done here, right? There are times in which we must uh, uh, just be extremely forthright, forthright with one another. Did you know that? There's a time for that. There's a time that we need to be friendly with one another in this way. And again, too often we keep to ourselves and to the degree that we won't even speak to our, 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 our loved ones, our brothers and our sisters. You know, as friends, as brothers and sisters, we must love one another enough to be honest with each other. Do you have someone who loves you enough to be honest with you, to be forward with you in love, in kindness? You know, we need that. When our relationships are good and healthy, when they are grounded in the word of the Lord, when we share words of correction, insight, or honesty, anything, it, it can be effectively given and received. And that's so important to be able to have strong relationships like that. Look at Proverbs 27, 6. It says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. What? Faithful are the wounds of a friend? It's like when you're saying something that just burns, right? It's faithful, it's good. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. It's not good to flatter one another if they're far from truth. Right? I'd say that a good example of this is found in Galatians when Paul opposes Peter. I think that's a good example. You know, Paul opposes Peter. Peter's doing something that, it, that has the potential to cause people's faith to waver. And so Paul confronts him and he corrects him. And all we know after that is that Peter continues to be a great leader. There's no conflict there. He, ex he receives it and life goes on and for the better. And so likewise, when there's an issue, you know, we have to be able to have that honest conversation with one another and say, yeah, I hear you, but this is what the Lord says. We have to be able to have those relationships. And so, again, we need people to help us recalibrate, to help us realign our eternal perspective, because often we lose it to the distractions or the rational reasons for us not to do things that we ought to do in this world. I think regardless of Esther's actions, Mordecai also had the full assurance that the Lord would preserve his people. And he said in verse 14, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. In other words, God's still going to preserve his people. <laughs> you don't have to be a part of it. You really don't have to be a part of it, but it's going to impact you. It's going to hurt. If you don't step up to the plate and if you don't do something at this time, you're going to feel it. It's going to have some kind of consequence. I think, in other words, you can say God will preserve his people, but it may be at a later time, too. It may not be right here, right now, because God's timing is totally different from ours. And for us here, in other words, as, as, as Mordecai is saying, as for us here in Susa, it may be too late because of our unwillingness to step up right here, right now. In Numbers 14, 18, we read that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the, of the fathers on the children to the third and to the fourth generation. In other words, our willingness to do justice and walk in righteousness not only affects us, but it also has the great potential to affect our children and their children. What we do matters. It has the, the, the potential for great 
effect in generation, for generations to come. Then Mordecai evaluates the situation and he recognizes that Esther is perfectly positioned by God's perfect sovereignty for a time such as this. Again, could it be that the Lord has positioned you perfectly where you are, who your friends are, who your relatives are, in the city that you are for such a time as this? Could it be that all of your hurts, all of your pains, all of your troubles, all of your experiences, all of your success, all of your, uh, let's see, uh, everything that has been purposeful or even the things that you felt were meaningless in your life, could it be that it was all to prepare you for such a time as this? I think so. I'll tell you what. When I was in high school, I was self-determined. I'm going to go to business school and I'm going to be very successful because I like things. That was my determination, self-determination. And so I go to school, I go to university, and I, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I do business management, and then from their human resources, thinking this is going to position me to be able to be successful with what I want, to be able to have the things that I want. Little did I know, and little did I plan, that I would be fired from the job that I had that was really good for me. I was doing very well for a 20, young 20-something-year-old 20 man, right? I was doing really well. I had a brand new car. I was able to afford things. I didn't even have to look at prices. I would just grab what I wanted from the shelf. That's the life that I lived. And I thought I was doing really well. And then I get fired from this job. And, I, and, and not just fired, I get, black, like I get blacklisted to the point where I can't even get a job within the industry anymore. The reason for my job, the, the firing for my job sounded really bad. It was a mistake, but it was still really, it sounded really bad, right? And so I go and I go and I try to get a job and I can't get a job. And finally, out of desperation, I take a job that I just, let's just do it, I need it. I had lost my car, I was repossessed, I had to move back with my parents, I had a wife, I had children, I'm desperate and I go and I take a job in the ministry. And it pays peanuts, but I'm gonna do it. You know what I mean? And so I work in this ministry and here I am in a position to disciple people and in that position I had to grow in spirit and in truth, right? And that position actually was a stepping stone to the next one, a nonprofit organization that take, they took care of foster children. And then that position set me up for the next one, full-time ministry at a church. And then that position set me up for the next one. And now I'm planting a church. I would have never had planned this for my life, but the Lord knew and he positioned me with purpose. Could it be that all of those steps were intentional, were purposeful for such a time as this? Absolutely. And if you're currently in one of those steps, just have the full hope and confidence that the Lord is leading you to a place where you're gonna be of high impact and what you do matters. The message that you bring matters and we shouldn't be silent. We should be ready in every season to declare it, amen? And so again, let me ask you this now. Let me turn it around on you. What work has God been preparing you to do? Write that down and think about it. What work is the Lord preparing me to do if I'm not already there, if I'm not already doing it, right? And when your name is called for deployment, let's say, what will you do? Will you step out in faith, knowing that it is the will of the Lord? Or will you ration yourself out of that? And so my hope is that we would all come to respond the way that Esther does in the next, uh, the, the next time around. Look at this second response from Esther. Again, her first response was logical. It was rational, but entirely ineffective. And that's worthy to note. And her second response is beyond her. And I think it's beautiful because it's sacrificial. 
And that's the highlight word. It's sacrificial. Esther's sacrificial response is found in verse 15 through 17. And she says this, Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go gather all the Jews to be found in Susan. Hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. And my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. This is bigger than me. This is worth dying for because it's not just about me. And so she fasts. Did you know that fasting is a really good way to humble yourself before the Lord? It is to say, I need you. I don't need this. I need you. It is to sacrifice the things that usually bring you sustenance, provision, entertainment, pleasure, whatever it may be, and saying, Lord, I need you. And so fasting is a way to humble yourself before the Lord because you're saying, God, I need you and I'm coming to you for that. And so this is the response that, that uh, Esther holds. And, and again, let me show you just how, how effective uh, fasting is. Joel 2, 12, it says, Not even, Yet even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. This is a response that the Lord actually calls us to, right? And so she does that. And so fasting, again, is an act of sacrifice. And it's not a way to impress God, but it's a way to lean in on Him and to surrender everything else is sacrificial. It's the best we could do. For we have nothing, you know, nothing that doesn't come from the Lord. And so it's also a means for atonement. And you think about that. Atonement is substitution. When you sacrifice something else, and substituted for the good thing, something amazing happens. And so that's essentially what Christ does for us. You know, he responds, his love for us is his response of sacrifice. He says, it's, it's what I'm going to do, you know, to die, to, to risk my life, to be put to death for you, right? By his death, we, the wrath of God was satisfied. He didn't have to do that. That's a sacrifice, and we're atoned through that. By his death, God's wrath is satisfied. By his death, our sin was just, justly dealt with. The Lord did not ignore the penalties of sin, but in fact, he, he, he is satisfied by the sacrifice that is through Jesus Christ. And by his death, we're justified and made righteous before God. And by his death, we are saved. And Esther comes to realize this. It is only only if I risk myself in sacrifice will there be a chance for salvation here, right? Think about that for yourself. If you have something to say and if you don't say, you put others at risk, even yourself possibly. It is worth putting yourself out there. Now, I'm not calling you guys to suicide missions, by the way. Okay, That's not what we're saying. But it's worth risking our comforts. It's worth risking our treasures. It's worth risking our time. It's worth risking everything really, for the message and the purpose of expanding the kingdom of God. We see this through Jesus, so why are, we beyond, why are we above that? We're not. This is what we're called to do. And I love the fact that Esther comes to realization and she sees this is totally worth dying for. This is something that I'm called. Maybe I am here for such a time as this. I'm going to do this. But here's the thing, though. You're going to do it with me. You're going to fast with me. You're going to pray with me. And we're going to go in the name of the Lord. Amen? And this is why it's so beautiful to have brothers and sisters in arms. Because together we're stronger. Together we can remind ourselves too of the Lord's promises and His glory and His strength. Because sometimes we become weak and then you are strong and so you strengthen me and vice versa. And we continue to grow. That's why it's important for us to not forsake the gathering of the saints. 
It's so good to be together in the name of the Lord. And so Esther comes to see the value of the sacrifice, and then she's able to see past herself and onto a greater purpose. And she determined to, or she resolved to risk it all for the people of God, that they might be saved. They might be saved because salvation didn't even belong to her. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Amen. And she says, and if I perish, I perish. Here's the point. And I'll give you a takeaway. The first one's a little bit long. I try to condense as best as I could. Maybe after you see it, you can reward it for me. But here's the deal. As God purposefully positions us for his glory, may we advance boldly according to his plan, and may we distance ourselves from self-unresponsiveness or selfish unresponsiveness. Do you see that? We sometimes unrespond selfishly, but if we're positioned for something, may we boldly move forward according to his plan. That's the point, I think. Let's not try to self-preserve. Let's do what we've been called to do in wisdom and in truth. Takeaway number two. As the Lord lives, there is always hope. Amen? So even if the situation seems dire, hopeless, there's always hope. Even if it looks hopeless, there's hope. Look at this. Uh, Romans chapter 4.18, in regards to Abraham, in hope he believed against hope. Isn't that good? In hope he believed against hope. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. If God said so, it's going to happen, regardless of what the situation looks like, regardless of what this world looks like, there's hope. And God is able to fulfill his promises. And so as long as the Lord lives, there is hope. Amen. And here's the takeaway for the kiddos. Children between zero and 99, raise your hands. God hears us when we pray. Isn't that awesome? God hears us when we pray. Let's pray. Pray for your friends, especially those who could be mean to you, right? Who are not necessarily likable. Let's pray for them. Pray for your parents, your brothers, your sisters. Pray for everybody who's a part of your circle, right? Pray for those that you sometimes don't even know how to pray for. Ask this Holy Spirit to, 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 to be that mediator between you and God, right? To, to, to uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Goodness. To intercede for you and for others, right? Pray for one another. Pray for yourself. Pray that God would make you strong and brave to be able to do what's right at the right time. And so here's what I have to say. God is awesome. And since he's able to make everything, he's able to make the stars in the universe. He's able to make everything that we see. He's able to see the, make the little, the little microscopic things that we can't even see. God is awesome. He's beyond all things. He is the one who creates and behind that sound of thunder and those beautiful displays of lightning. You know, that's God's power. He's awesome. He's truly amazing. He is beyond our comprehension. He is worthy of our honor and our praise, and he is totally trustworthy, right? He is also able to turn dire situations or hopeless situations around for the good because he can do that. He's the one who makes life. And it very well may be that he has put us, and I do believe this with all my heart, right here, right now, for such a time that maybe we'd hear the good news and be saved. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word today. Lord, I'm just moved by it, Father, challenged and encouraged. Lord, help us be diligent and faithful to you and be sacrificial, Father, 
in a way that reflects your sacrifice well, Lord. Give us the strength to be able to share the message that you've given us to share. And Lord, we trust you to guide us, Lord, according to your will, according to your word. Thank you for this beautiful example in Mordecai and Esther, their willingness to sacrifice, Lord Jesus, for the preservation of the saints. And so, Lord, help us be effective in our calling and how you've positioned us today. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.